0: Hey everybody, welcome back. My name is Jacob and this is the Compiling Podcast. This episode is for the 23rd of November, 2020. And today I am joined once again by my good friend, Troy.
1: Hello, hello.
0: All right. So um, last week, we did change up the format just a bit. Uh, We are going to talk about some news stories that have to do with technology and security. And then we'll move into our discussion topic. And so yeah, let's just hop right into the news stories. So uh, yeah, (laughs) let's go. Um, I've been running a YouTube channel since about mm, 2015. I think it was October of 2015 when I started. And um, if you've also been running a YouTube channel, then you'll probably know that one of the first major hurdles to get over as like a small YouTube creator is, you know, getting that 4000 or 4000 minutes, I think it is of watch time in a year, and then 1000 subscribers. And then you can join the YouTube partner program and start making money from YouTube showing ads on your videos. Um, But uh, before you reach that uh, mark. YouTube just won't show ads on your videos and you won't make any money off of it. So it's just kind of like YouTube's not making money and you're not making money. But recently, just this past week, YouTube announced that they are going to be changing that policy. So they'll be actually showing ads on videos owned by creators who aren't part of the partner program, meaning that the creator will not be receiving money from those ads, but the ads will still be shown on the videos, which is a change from how it worked before so what do you think about this troy i'm actually really genuinely interested to hear your thoughts because my opinion is like kind of different from what i've been hearing a lot of other people say so
1: well for me for starters it's important to remember that at the base level youtube is an advertising company Right, I feel like a lot of people don't mm-hmm. actually recognize this for what it is, but like YouTube is an advertising company. Any TV channel that you've watched or any uh, video service, more or less, that you've used is primarily an advertising company, right? Google mm-hmm. is an advertising company, right,
0: mm-hmm. more
1: or less, because their primary source of revenue is not from subscription fees. It's not from selling products, it's from selling advertisements, right? YouTube videos are just there to get you on the platform so that you end up seeing mm-hmm. the advertisements. And so this is just bringing to light that this these ads are in fact YouTube's priority. And I think some people, some casual users of youtube might be like what this is so dumb why would they do this this is stupid they're doing it because it's their company structure right it's how they make money Mm -hmm. right uh yeah
0: i just looked up um i found a article from forbes from Just under a year ago, December 24th of 2019, this Forbes article says that Google's advertising revenue will contribute 83.3% of Alphabet, Google's parent company, total revenue for 2019. So assuming those numbers stay, you know, relatively consistent, yeah, Google is absolutely primarily an advertising company. Exactly. And And I would say um,
1: Google relies less on advertising than YouTube does for profit. That's just a guess. I don't Another, know that.
0: Yeah, I don't. I don't know how YouTube breaks down uh, as far as revenue. Um, but at least a couple of years ago, it was true that Google actually runs YouTube at a loss, um, meaning that maybe this is a case of them just trying to cut that loss a little bit. I wouldn't um, be surprised. I also, yeah. <laughs> um, I also did find this graphic. Um I can send this to you real quick. I found this graphic of uh YouTube channels and like their respective size and well over half of YouTube channels are uh, as of about 2020. Okay, so this is a pretty recent graph. Um well over half of these uh YouTube channels are between 10 and 100 subscribers. So you know, depending on how many videos those channels have like that could be a lot of videos with really low audiences that youtube just isn't making money off of
1: exactly and so just trying to cut their losses my main concern is not the fact that they're putting ads on smaller channels right to me Mm -hmm. they have every right to do that because it's their platform right there's no subscription fees even to use YouTube, right? It's a miracle Mm -hmm. that it's been this long and they haven't done this, right? Well,
0: I mean, we do have the YouTube Red or whatever it's called. Well, yeah,
1: but I mean who uses that? (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) my main concern is if these channels will have control over what kinds of advertisements will be shown on their videos right? If there's a kid-friendly channel, right? Or a channel that is maybe not like labeled as kid friendly because putting the kid friendly label on you really like limits your channel a lot it does um mm-hmm. so a lot of channels probably don't do that but are still intended to be for you know like not about violence or politics or whatever like, right minecraft they, let's plays <laughs> yeah but if they have no say in what kind of advertisements are shown on your channel then that for me gets into a bit of a gray area of this is concerning right because these creators are trying to build in essence like their own sub platform inside of youtube Mm -hmm. right like the the creators still have certain rights and if there's advertisements that are starkly contrasting the type of content they want to provide that's an issue
0: yeah um that's actually a really interesting point you bring up about like control over what type of advertisements. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with well, it's a term that's been thrown around a bunch of the past couple of years. Uh, the ad apocalypse, there's been a few of them, you know, uh, where it's actually kind of the other way around where, uh, it's not that, you know, the channel creators are picking and choosing what ads are shown on their videos. Rather it's, um, you know, people will get mad at advertisers for advertising for choosing to advertise on a specific type of video or maybe not necessarily choosing specifically but their ad ending up on that particular type of video. So you know with with that these we have two conflicting concerns, right? Where the the creators, they want to be able to choose maybe what ads are on their videos and the advertisers also want to be able to choose what videos they show their ads on. And YouTube is just kind of getting hate from both sides.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, to me, those are two separate issues. Because the one of uh, advertisers choosing what videos their ads show up on, that only affects those creators are getting paid for ads. Mm -hmm. Right? Whereas this article, this move by YouTube, is affecting those that don't. Those that don't, Uh I don't think, care at that point whether an advertiser chooses to advertise on their videos or not. But I think they would start caring about what kinds of advertisements there are. And I guess mm-hmm. I you know, I, I, I don't know how the whole the algorithm works or anything. I haven't been <laughs> quite that into the bowels of YouTube yet. Um mm-hmm. but it is something that I, if I was a starting creator, might be concerned about if I'm going for a certain audience or like content field.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. But I guess when it really comes down to it, I'm not convinced this is actually as big of a change as people are making it out to be. Oh, not because at all. Because like like you said before, YouTube, it's their website. They get to ch- when it, when it comes down to it, right? It's all up to YouTube. And there's still it's still the same limit, like it's still 4,000 minutes, it's still 1,000 subscribers, right? They're not changing that barrier. And they're not making it any more difficult, uh, so far as I can tell. So it really doesn't affect those smaller creators quite as much as I think some people are making it out to be. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I'm being insensitive.
1: <laughs> I'm. I. I think that's kind of the way I see it too.
0: Okay. Well, that sounds like a good place to move on from that story and on to the next one um, where we had Mozilla Firefox introducing this new HTTPS only mode in Firefox version 83. And I actually just got this update earlier today. So I've been testing out this HTTPS mode and I will be happy to announce that I haven't noticed it at all, uh, (laughs) which is a good sign, actually, (laughs) because... um, as they mentioned in their announcement post for this new feature, most of the web that you visit on a regular basis is already using HTTPS. And a lot of hosts, like I've worked with some websites that are on these smaller hosts that a few years ago were HTTP only unless you purchase an SSL certificate. Now they're just adding SSL certificates for free, usually you know from Let's Encrypt or something like that.
1: Yeah. So. When I read this article, I thought they didn't already have this. I've used Firefox before, but not prodigiously. Um, And I think, you know, like you said earlier, right? the, The article says Firefox even says most of the Internet nowadays is HTTPS, right? So if you stop a minute and think about it, this ability of it to start warning you when you're about to go to an HTTP website is less valuable than it was before. Right. Mm-hmm. Because there's less yeah. HTTP websites. Right. Uh-huh. So in my opinion, it's like kind of too little too late. I mean, it's good that they yeah. have it, but this should have happened a long time ago.
0: Yeah. I totally see where you're coming from. I happen to be a regular religious Firefox user. Uh, <laughs> Not because I'm, you know, that tinfoil hat anti-Google, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, we literally share the sh- show notes for this uh, for this podcast over Google Docs. So I'm definitely not anti-Google but, by any means. But as far as this HTTPS-only feature goes, um, Firefox did have a couple HTTPS, like, prefer features before. Um, the two ones that I can think of right now is... Uh, If you visit an HTTP only site, it'll show like, you know, you have the little security like lock icon in the upper left near your address bar. And it'll show that with a red slash through it. And then the other feature is if Firefox notices that a website has an HTTPS version, it will prefer that version over the HTTP version. It's just now it will explicitly warn you and say, like it shows a full page screen. It says, this is an unsecure site. This HTTP only site. Are you sure you want to go here? So,
1: yeah. Which I mean, like I said before, it's good, but in my opinion, it's not. It's not that hard of a thing to implement, right? It's really <laughs> not. And it makes me wonder why they didn't do it before. And I guess you know, I, I guess for me, the connotation is that uh, overall, people who are more, I guess, I guess I'll say like computer literate use Mm -hmm. firefox right (laughs) so like you know overall the the audience of firefox would be um more aware of these kinds of things Mm -hmm. but I, i i still don't think that's like a reason per se
0: okay well that sounds good um i understand where you're coming from and it sounds good to me so our (laughs) Our third and final story for today is one from the BBC. As always, uh, links to all these stories are in the show notes or the description if you're watching this on YouTube. Um, And this is about how smart doorbells are vulnerable to hackers or some of these like top selling smart doorbells on Amazon were vulnerable to hackers. And one of these brands was actually caught sending unencrypted passwords to China and right before the show started you had a really interesting comment about this story what was that
1: uh, oh my gosh oh yes um they um there's a whole big old section in this article titled convenience versus security which is just the most classic question in computer security ever because people want things to be extremely convenient and work super well but as soon as their information gets somewhere where it's not supposed to be, they complain, right? And, mm-hmm. it's, yeah. you know, it's and- it, it's a scale, and you have one slider, and you can only be at one position on that scale, right? It yeah, is-
0: unfortunately... People tend to prefer convenience until security is compromised. Yeah. Instead of prioritizing security and then building up convenience as much as possible. Yeah. While maintaining the same level of security.
1: Although to be fair, a it's doorbell just... sending passwords to China is not like you know, not enough. That sounds security. kind of intentional. <laughs> yeah, that's it's a bit sketchy. But I mean, so I'm guessing it's probably like a. they they recommend here make sure you're buying from a trusted brand which totally right you should always be doing your research especially when you're buying an internet of things item yeah right an internet things item which can connect to the internet and usually other things on your home network because one thing this article mentions is that some of the doorbells let hackers into other parts of your home that are also connected to your network so it's extremely important yep. to something- vet the things that you buy. Mm-hmm.
0: So something that uh, I've always just been kind of skeptical about these IOT devices, you know, the Google Home, the smart doorbells, the what what are they always advertising on the other uh, podcasts, like the the security sensors and cameras and stuff like that. <laughs> um ring ring of security yeah, that's yeah. what it's called yeah those devices all of these like super internetty connected devices you know make you know i can just turn on my coffee maker you know via the internet something as someone who's deeply involved in technology and programming and has a great deal of interest in security anytime i hear of more things being connected to the internet that just sounds that just kind of makes me cringe inside because it's It's more opportunity for vulnerability for just this tiny bit of convenience. Like, so much. Like, you're literally putting the security of your home on the internet
1: to be hacked,
0: basically. And it doesn't
1: need to be. (laughs) Newsflash, people. The internet is not secure. Let me repeat that. The internet is (laughs) not secure. When the internet was made... Its design goals did not include security. So anything connected to the internet, you cannot count on it being secure. What
0: are you telling me that IP doesn't have security just integrated directly into it?
1: Yeah, there's a reason people still use closed circuit television. It's because it's not connected to any internet or network. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It means you have to get to the physical hardware in order to compromise it.
0: Yeah. So, my recommendation is stop connecting literally everything in your house to the internet, please.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or I, if I at least, if you're going to do it, do something, use something that is a trusted item that other people have used that uh, people who know things about technology have used. And also, mm-hmm. this this is an important note, because uh, a lot of this is about, like, the default passwords on these things being extremely uh-huh. weak. Most things that you get, most items, like doorbells or especially, like, Wi-Fi routers, right, will have a default password. And it's usually not that difficult. And there are uh, databases out there that have lists of these common mm-hmm. passwords. So it, if you want to drastically improve the security of your Internet of Things items... Change the default password. Figure out how to do it. Google it. Whatever you have to do, but change it to mm-hmm. a good password.
0: Yeah, that'll actually help a lot. Even just just changing the default password too often that is that just doesn't get done, and it's astonishing how how many, how few people actually rather um, don't change that default password. Yeah. All right. So that's our spiel about security. Uh, And so that's it also for our news stories. And now we're gonna be moving into the next section of this episode where we're talking about this question. And that is how do you go about solving a programming or technology problem when you don't necessarily know where to start? For example, like if you're learning a new technology, learning a new library, new API or programming language, or maybe you're trying to fix a bug in a project that you didn't build like maybe you just got a new job or you're working on a project for school but you're given like a template or something and you didn't write all the codes you don't necessarily know the details of what's going on how would you approach one of these problems
1: so for me it kind of depends on what you're talking about learning a new technology and trying to fix a bug in a project that i didn't build are two kind of different things. So I'll start with the second one because I probably have a bit more experience in that. For me, if like I'm starting a new job or I'm entering a workspace that I haven't interacted with before, I'm told to implement something, fix something, whatever. Um let's just stick with fix something for now. Uh mm-hmm. you'll usually hopefully you get a location of where this problem is right otherwise it's a bit difficult to figure out uh where it is but assuming you get kind of the general idea of oh yeah it contain it it is related to this part of the code right it's either the build scripts or this class Mm -hmm. or something like that it's a lot of following the rabbit holes i guess for me mm-hmm. i mean it's it, it it's a delicate balance of following things down the line through files to try and understand what they do without going too deep that it takes up all of your time right because if it's not yeah. the thing that gets to the root of the problem you still need to understand it because it will probably help you contextualize future code but you can't go so far as you just be stuck on the same line of code for like a week
0: yeah right and so you can't necessarily do a full like depth first search and you also can't necessarily do the breadth first search like because you you don't know commit to one of them because you don't know anything yet yeah so it has to be this balance between like how many levels deeper you're going to go before you move on
1: yeah and obviously if you have any documentation that can usually help. However, there usually isn't documentation. Common joke, but it's a real thing, unfortunately. Um, and so in the case that you don't have documentation, it's a lot about you know using debuggers, or honestly, I still use a lot of print statements to help figure yep, out the, 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 the control flow of a program. Mm-hmm. They're just useful and pretty easy right and i don't need to yeah. you know set up a debugger if there isn't one or figure out how to use one that's already there i know how to do print statements Um yeah <laughs> debuggers are also very nice but those tend to be in my experience more useful for the actual like when you have when you found the bug and you need to figure out exactly what's going on right not yeah. super good for yeah. pinpointing the bug per se because it really gets down to the brass tacks of What value does this thing hold? What value does this thing hold? And also uh-huh.
0: when you get really into the weeds with debuggers, like sometimes learning a debugger is like, that's a technology in and of itself, yep. yeah. right? Like <laughs> you can't always just like jump in and say, okay, I'm going to debug this code using this debugger when you've never used the debugger before. Sometimes debuggers are just as complicated as the technology you're t- trying to debug. So that could be an issue. Yeah. And so um, w- I am really glad that you brought up uh, documentation before. Cause I think that, um, points to two more ways that you can approach some problem that you just have no experience with before um and one is learning how to read documentation huh. and yeah. that's actually a really important skill to have as a programmer because if you're working in any sort of modern language so essentially not COBOL, not fortran and possibly not see, (laughs) you know, depending, um, technology is changing really quickly. I tend to focus on web development and web technologies, and I don't think I would necessarily be wrong in saying that web technologies are the largest, fastest growing, fastest changing set of technologies in the programming world today. I don't know. Do you want to contest that statement?
1: Um... I haven't had a whole lot of interaction with web development, but I I it seems plausible. Yeah. So
0: and because of that, like there's a new library coming out every couple of years. That's the new cool kid on the block, right? For, we had we had um, jQuery and we had Bootstrap and those were kind of the thing, maybe like three to five years ago, and now we have React and Angular, and now Vue is the new kid on the block, and that's just the cool one to be using, right? And so if you're in web development specifically, uh, these libraries are changing so quickly. You're going to learn a technology, and three years later, it'll be defunct, or you're going to hop on to a new project that's using a new technology, and you really have to, like learning how to read documentation is a vital skill. And that can really help uh, when you're approaching a new technology or a project you haven't worked with before is if there is documentation, that might not be enough. You also have to know how to read the documentation. And then the second reason, yes.
1: How do you read documentation?
0: How do I read documentation? Well, that sounds like a massive question for possibly a video, or a podcast episode all of its own. Oh. The tease. (laughs) The tease, Gonna hold
1: it over them.
0: Yeah, and also, like, second, like, side note, please write documentation for any code that other people are intended to, like, work with. So whether that means just commenting it well or writing some sort
1: of half-decent readme, please do this. Please, please. If I work on your code, I want documentation, or I might cry. <laughs> I'm already almost right. to tears thinking about it.
0: Um, oh my goodness, I have I have definitely worked with some spaghetti code in my day. It's uh, that is not yeah. fun.
1: <laughs> um, so the other thing I wanted to say is my probably my top tip, my top tip for either of these: learning a new technology or trying to fix a bug in a project that you didn't build. Right. Because you're, you don't have experience with it is talk to somebody that has experience with it, particularly if it's a project that you didn't build somebody who is part of the building process. Right. And this reveals mm-hmm. a part of computer science or software engineering that a lot of people, at least the common culture, doesn't think of a lot, which is the social aspect, which is the soft skills. Right. The communication skills because there's a lot of communicating and there's a lot of sharing knowledge right a lot of computer Mm -hmm. science it because everything is changing so fast like you said jacob a lot of computer science is learning how to share that knowledge in a concise yet full way right Mm -hmm. and so if you're up against this right do not be afraid to Seek out the people that know about it and ask them about it. Because number one, they will Mm -hmm. probably be so happy that you asked and will help you with it. Oh, definitely. So happy, right? Anytime I get to help somebody understand something, it's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. Um and secondly, it's going to be number one, it's going to give you a lot better overview big picture than even like reading documentation, right? Because I can read function definitions for a class all day long, but Mm -hmm. maybe it doesn't tell me what the class is actually useful for. Right? Whereas somebody who has used it does know that and will tell me right from the get go.
0: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Definitely asking for help is always a great way (laughs) to get help. Like please do not be afraid. There there's so much to Computer science. And there's so much information out there. You can't possibly expect for you to just know what to do right off the bat all the time. Asking for help is not something that you should ever be ashamed for do uh, ashamed of doing. Uh, I do it all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? if oh uh, if if you are a computer science student at a university somewhere, learning about these languages, and these libraries, and these algorithms. Right, whatever your job you are in, ninety eight percent of the time will have nothing to do with anything you learned in school. Right? Mm-hmm. Might be a hot take, but from my experience, most of the on- <laughs> most, like for me, the 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 primary thing out of a computer science education is learning how to think like a programmer. Anything else, right? I mean, learning languages are useful because that's kind of like that base level thing, the syntax, right? The grammar of yep. programming per se, right? But anything else, right? Like algorithms or like things like that, those can be useful, but there's so there's so many fields to computer science. There's so much going on and things are changing so much that the odds of you needing that specific algorithm in whatever job you end up in are so very small.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's not about knowing things it's about learning things
0: yeah like learning how to think like a programmer also learning how to think like a computer is also a really important thing that you do learn in college learning how to think like a computer and solve problems with computers i think those are kind of major things that you learn in a computer science degree which is something that i talked about in the last episode if you want to learn about computer science degrees (laughs) hey
1: man we are really doing all the plugs today
0: yeah, dude, great segues. But um, is there anything you want else you wanted to mention about this uh, question that we had for the episode today?
1: Um, I guess the only other thing I'll mention is know when to stop. It can be easy to just kind of get infuriated with it and keep pounding your head against the wall on something. And sometimes you have to do that, but you have to do that for a little bit, right? If you're huh. pounding your head against it for too long, you're wasting your time. Go ask somebody about it. Try a different angle. Go get a drink, right? Don't be afraid to break stuff. Don't be afraid to break stuff. You learn a lot by breaking code.
0: Oh, my goodness. So much. Yeah. Um, Highly recommend breaking code on a regular basis. It's a great experience. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So (laughs) ask for help and know when to stop.
0: All right. Well, on that note, I think we will wrap up this episode of the Compulane podcast. I want to say thank you so much to my good friend, Troy, for joining me once again on this podcast. My pleasure. (laughs) And uh, I guess we will talk at you all again next week. Thanks so much for listening. Goodbye.
1: See ya.